in Psalm 143 this morning, the entirety of the psalm. Hear now God's word. A psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me, in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Salah. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Tanner Fixeri. I grew up in this church, and since it's been a while and a lot is going on in my life, I thought it'd be good to do a quick life update. <laughs> For the past five years, I've been working as a chaplain with the Hospice of Central Ohio. Um, in the picture in the middle there, I've been married to my wife, Brittany, for almost four years now, and we have three children together. Cameron is three. He's down at my feet. Uh, my daughter Peyton is one, and we are expecting our third child. We're having a boy probably in October. Thank you. Uh, it occurs to me that last week David in his sermon talked about filling your quiver with arrows, and we've been working on that. <laughs> in April, I passed the ordination exam, and in August, I will be appearing before our presbytery's ministerial committee. And if that goes well, I will be appearing before our presbytery to be examined to be ordained. And if that goes well, I will get to be a ordained teaching elder in our presbytery. Not a, a teaching elder at our church, but an ordained hospice chaplain in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And that's a lot of pressure coming up. A, lo a lot of pressure. And yet, I am most nervous about appearing before you all today. Be <laughs> because if... Presbytery doesn't go well, I can just say, you know, they just don't really know me. But if it doesn't go well here today, I can't say that. <laughs> One of the best books ever written is Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. If David were here, he would say that the better Dostoevsky book is The Brothers Karamazov, but I have the microphone today. <laughs> the story tells of a young student named Rodion Ruskolnikov. Uh, and in the very beginning of the story, he commits murder. 
and it's one of the first psychological thrillers ever written. The bulk of the story is him desperately wrestling with the inner turmoil, the spiritual guilt of what he has done. The story at many points describes him as a walking corpse, skeletal and gaunt. He tries to tamp down his guilt by saying he really needed the money and his victim wasn't a good person, but he's just not able to convince himself. His love interest, Sonia Marmeladova, tends to him and reads the gospel to him, and in a very emotional scene, he confesses all of his crimes to her, and this is what she says to him. Go now. Go this very moment and stand at the crossroads. Bow down and first kiss the earth which you have defiled, then bow down to the whole world to the four points of the compass, and say aloud for all men to hear, I am a murderer. Then God will send you life again. The importance of his confession is, hold on, still figuring this out. The importance of his confession is that he no longer makes excuses for himself, no philosophical rationalizations as to why he couldn't help it, but truly owns up to what he did. Only then can his healing begin. If a better book on repentance was ever written, I have not yet found it. Because we are Raskolnikov dead in our trespasses and sins until we admit what we have done. Only then can we truly come into the life that we were meant to live. And this isn't just repentance when we first come to Christ. Our whole lives are one of repentance, as Martin Luther said. We are currently in a series on called Summer in the Psalms. We've been exploring many of the Psalms and the various genres that they have. We have in the past talked about expressing our desires to God, expressing our hurt and our despair to Him. And our scripture reading today, Psalm 143, is called one of the seven penitential psalms. Penitence may be a new word to many of you. Uh, I have a working definition. Penitence is the action of expressing sorrow or regret for something you have done. It often is used synonymously with repentance. So our scripture reading today is an example set for us how we can biblically come to God expressing our guilt, our shame, our remorse, and our regret. But first, let's pray. Lord, we know that we have sinned and fall short of your glory. We pray that this would be a time where we can look at our sin with clear eyes, that we can come to you in honest penitence, and be restored to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O rock and redeemer. Amen. Like many of the Psalms, this was written by David, clearly during a time of great distress. He had many enemies in his life. Um, we've talked about some of them already. He had Goliath, the Philistines, Saul, and his son Absalom. Psalm 143 does not specify which of his enemies that he is dealing with at this time. It just says that he is dealing with enemies. But what we do know is that he desperately needs God at this time. And as I was preparing for my time this morning, I noticed a cycle that he goes through in his words. First, he looks to God. Then he looks at his sin. Then he looks at his circumstances. And then he goes back to looking at God in a cycle that happens three times in the text. And I believe that the order in which he does this 
is important for him as much as it is for us. So first and foremost, he looks to God. David was known as a man after God's own heart. He says in verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In verse 5, he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. What is your first impulse when you are faced with a problem? You may be inclined to talk to a friend about it or try to process it on your own, but the example David sets is he goes first to God. In verse 5, he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. David was a man who knew the scriptures. He knew the Lord and sought him out. And so he does this in two ways when he meditates on all that God has done. One, he knows what God has done in the scriptures, such as when he parted the Red Sea in Exodus. He, he thinks about that, how God in his might has delivered the Israelites over the years and generations. But more importantly, he meditates on what God has done for David in his life. He thinks about the times when God came through for him in times of great distress, and that enriches his prayer life and his sense of closeness with the Lord. And we can do that. You can think back on the times when you really needed God. You can say, God, I remember when I didn't know how I was going to make ends meet, and you provided for me. Therefore, Lord, I trust you. I know that you will care for me as you always have. In verse 10, David says, teach me to do your will for you are my God. Multiple times in the text, he expresses that he seeks to do God's will, but I really want to sit with this one phrase for a minute. He says, you are my God. It's one of those deep and powerful truths that we know on a surface level, but we truly need to let it sink in all the time. God is not just the God. He is your God, and he is mine. I get glimpses of this sometimes. This past week, I had my baby daughter sitting on my lap, and I was fawning over her, as I often do. And I'm thinking about how she is the most incredible, sweet, and affectionate baby girl I've ever known. And she's also mine, and I am hers. How much more incredible is it that we can say that about the God of the universe who made all of this and holds the cosmos in his hands? You can call him your God. There's a scene in Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams' character is saying over and over to Matt Damon, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And at first, Matt Damon goes, I know, I know. But after he heard it enough times, he starts to break down and truly process how true it is and what it means for him. All throughout the scriptures, God says to his people, you are supposed to be my people and I'm supposed to be your God. And we need to be told that over and over again. Exodus 25, 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. Ezekiel 14, 11, that they may be my people and I will be their God. The phrase, you shall be my people and I will be your God, used over and over again from Jeremiah in three times in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and Leviticus 26, 12. You don't have to write all of this down. If I were to list all of the times it occurred in the scriptures, we would be here a while. 
But here's where it's all going. In Revelation 21.3, all of these promises will be brought to completion. When we are in the new heavens and the new earth, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them as their God. That's what we want. We want to be God's people. We want him to be our God. No matter what is going on in our lives, that is the closeness we need with him. After we look at God, we look at our sin. David's phrasing in verse 2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. In verse 7, he says, Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me. As soon as we look at God, we realize how much we do not measure up. Again, the order in this is very important. We are going to look at David's circumstances as we are also going to look at our own problems. But David knows to look at his sin first. And we should look at our sin before we even look at our own problems. And I, I acknowledge that all of our problems are very serious. I am not downplaying how serious some of the things that are going on in our lives. I am emphasizing how serious sin is. David has reason to fear for his physical safety at this time. But first he is concerned for the state of his soul. In my experience, I've found that confronting sin is one of the biggest obstacles for people to come to God. To admit that you are a sinner, that you are in the wrong, it's difficult. No matter how many times you've done it, it takes swallowing your pride and admitting that you are wrong. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. We often get very we often get very mixed up in what we think about sin and what that word means. I'd like to just so we're all on the same page give a good definition of the Christian message of what sin is. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. Rather it's God giving us life, all of the amazing blessings that we have, and yet we say to God, thanks, but no thanks. I, I love having the things that you give me. I just don't want you. And as Augustine says, we turn away from God and turn inward on ourselves. And by turning away from God, we turn away from our very source of life. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. I can't emphasize this enough. You need to confront your own sin. Sin is serious. Because if you do not confront it, you will be separated from God. Your greatest enemy is your own sin. There are three things not to do when we look at our sin. The first thing to do is suppress our feelings. Our world has a very complicated relationship with shame. We know that shame is an uncomfortable feeling. We don't like it. And so what's the modern message on shame right now? Just don't feel ashamed for what you're doing. 
I remember about 10 years ago, the saying was, no regrets. But sometimes you do things that you regret. Sometimes you feel bad for the things that you've done because you should feel bad. Now, I understand that sometimes we feel shame for too long after we've been forgiven. There is such thing as needless shame. But if we're really honest with ourselves, by and large, most shame is healthy. It is a mistake not to address it because it could be the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin and telling you that something is wrong. It is painful, but it's like the pain of your hand touching a hot stove and you need to pull it away. So do not suppress your feelings of sin, but rather direct them to God. Second thing not to do with your sin is to obscure it. This is to cover it up or phrase it in a way where it doesn't sound so bad. I think we all know what that's like. We don't need to be just theoretical about our sin, admit in some general sense that we are sinners. We know that. Rather, we have to name specific sins. Be direct about what you did in the same way that Raskolnikov said, I am a murderer. Sin thrives in darkness, and so you need to name it specifically what you did. Third thing not to do with your sin is to excuse it. This is when you um, explain why it's not actually your fault, all the things that led up to it, and how you really couldn't help it. It's like saying to God, I'm sorry, but. From the very beginning of the existence of sin, in Genesis 3, what did Adam say? The woman whom you gave to me gave me the fruit and I ate. And what did Eve say? The serpent deceived me and I ate. For as long as sin has existed, the temptation has been there to deflect, hasn't it? But if you give in to that, if you do not truly take responsibility for what you did, you will be caught in an endless cycle of sin only when you truly say, it was me, will you begin to heal. We not only have to come to God and admit that we have sinned, but we have to come to one another and say that we have sinned. We are sinners among sinners, and we will inevitably hurt one another. That's just what it means to live in this fallen world. And so, my hope for all of us is that we make it common practice that we go up to one another and say, I have sinned to you in this way. Please forgive me. I think it's an incredible opportunity with our children in particular that they see this. What if your children saw you come up to them and say, your dad yelled at you in anger today, and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? They will remember that. They will experience real penitence and forgiveness on a real-life level. It's an incredible opportunity for them. And on the other side of the conversation, if someone comes up to you and says, I have sinned against you in this way, the proper response is, I forgive you as Christ has forgiven me. I know it's, it's so simple, yet so difficult. Because again, you have to swallow your pride and forgive. 
I know it's not easy, but that is what we are called to do because we are forgiven people and forgiven people are forgiving people. Finally, David looks at his circumstances. He says in verse 3, For the enemy has pursued my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground, and he has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Verse 9, he says, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. This week, my three-year-old son says something really incredible to me. He said, when we're scared, we say, God, please help me. My wife is clearly teaching him very well. (laughs) That's a teaching that's so simple that a child can understand it, so obvious that you almost miss it. But we should come to God with our problems, shouldn't we? I know that we're kind of at the point where, you know, about this time in the sermon, you start to fidget in your seat and your mind starts to wander. I, I, I know, I've been there. But let's not miss out on how radical this is. Because really think about the context of what's led up to this point. We've looked at God, infinite in holiness and majesty. And then we've looked at ourselves, wretched and sinful. And yet we have the audacity to go to God and ask him for help. And he does. Why? because he's a good father who wants to give good things to his children. I don't know what you're going through this week. I know some things that are going on in your lives, and I know some things are going on in many people's lives that will just, life will weigh you down severely. Go to God with these things. Let him know what you are dealing with, how it makes you feel, and be honest with him. That's what he wants. He is waiting for you to come to him and tell him what you need. In Hebrews 4.16, it says, let us then with all confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. It's not lost on me that the specific problem that David is dealing with is a person, an enemy, He says in verse 12, And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. For as long as God's people have existed, from ancient Israel to Jesus and the apostles, through the early church, there have always been people that are opposed to God's people. They've always been around, and we should not be made unaware of that. Jesus promised us that opposition will exist while we are trying to be obedient to him. He said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The same world that put Jesus on a cross will inevitably be directly opposed to his disciples that obey him and imitate him. For us, this will range from people who find Christians to be mildly annoying, backwards and ignorant, all the way to the very extreme cases of people who think that there should be no Christians on earth and everything in between. We've been very conveniently shielded from this truth 
because we live in modern America, which is more or less a Christian nation. And we don't realize that in other parts of the world, this Sunday morning, there are Christians meeting together under threat of death. And yet they meet because the enemies that seek their lives will not stop them. Nor should we let whatever enemies exist in our lives, they should not stop us either. We are to remain obedient and stand firm in the faith, no matter what level of opposition we face in this life. And I'm not saying that we should be instigative people picking fights any chance we get. I don't think that's any of our personality, maybe some. But if I'm honest with myself, and I think if we're being honest, most of us err on the side of people-pleasing, of getting along to get along, and not really wanting to rock the boat. But it's important for us all to reckon with this very real truth. Enemies exist. They are out there, and you will likely not have to find them. They will find you. What will you do when that time comes? David stands firm and prays to God. We've talked a lot about sin and guilt. And in lingering on all of that, we may likely be feeling very heavy right now. This was admittedly a more bleak sermon than usual. But I have good news for you all. Though you may have gone over in your head specific sins in your life, you do not have to feel shame for very long. Because as it says in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Though you did not deserve his love and mercy, God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty of sin and death that we deserved so that we didn't have to. And now that relationship with God can be restored and we can be with God forever in paradise, just as it was always meant to be. That is the greatest news I have for all of you. Or at, this is the greatest news I could ever have for you at any time. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit, who through David gave us this example to follow, that we would first look to you, then truly admit our sin, and then share with you what is hurting us. God, may we all make that common practice in our lives that we would be forgiven and restored to you. Thank you for being our God. May we never lose sight of that. Lord, would you preserve your church, both here and abroad, and deliver us from all the evil that is out there. God, we pray that you would help those who are especially hurting today, who are weighed down by the hurt and the pain of life and circumstances that are just overwhelming. God, we lift up the things that are heaviest on our hearts this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you hear us, that you want to hear us, and that you welcome us to come before your throne and share what is burdening us.
that you may take these burdens away from us and equip us to walk in the abundance of life that is found in you. We now pray in the way that your son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 